You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so last fall we began a set of sermons uh, through the Sermon on, on the Mount. And today we've reached the last section of that sermon. Uh, we, are, we are landing the plane today. This is the last sermon in this set of sermons. Uh, but before we do that, I want to I wanna go back and remind you of why it is that we have spent time in this particular section of the scriptures, uh, these, these particular three chapters. Um, why have we done that? Let me give you just the, the three reasons that we, uh, we uh, told you up front. Number one is that one of the things I love about th- these particular three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, is it has a way of putting us face-to-face with Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 is a three-chapter sermon, but it's a unique sermon because Jesus is the preacher, right? I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Jesus is the one preaching the sermon. It's his longest recorded sermon in the Gospels. And when I read this, this sermon, these three chapters, it oftentimes feels to me like God has pulled up a chair in front of me uh, that Jesus has set down in front of me, and there in front of me, looking at me face to face, Jesus begins to talk to me. And I just love that. I hope that you've had that experience over the last several months as we have worked through uh, these chapters together. Another reason why we've chosen uh, this particular part of the Bible is it's one of the richest sections of the Scriptures. It's one of the richest sections of the Scriptures. There are a few places in the Bible that are as rich and ready to enjoy as these three chapters. Um, I love these words from the old Puritan pastor Thomas Watson. Talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. In this portion of Holy Scripture, you have a summary of true religion. The Bible epitomized. Here is a garden of delight. This is is what these three chapters are to everyone who will come to them with uh, with an open heart. Uh, Here is a garden of delight where you may pluck those flowers, which will deck the hidden man of your heart. Here is the golden key, which will open the gate of paradise. Here is the conduit of the gospel, running wine to nourish such as are poor in spirit and and pure in heart. Here is the rich cabinet wherein the pearl of blessedness is locked up. Here is the golden pot holding manna, which will feed and revive the soul unto everlasting life. Yes to that. And I just, I hope you have found it to be that rich and enjoyable and good for your soul as we've spent time in this section of the Bible. And thirdly, the third reason why why we chose the Sermon on the Mount is because it points to the way of human happiness. It points to the way of human happiness. Every human being, you, me, all of us, every human being wants to be happy. And the reason that is deep down in every human heart is because God has planted it deep down in every human heart. That longing to be happy is a universal longing. Everybody wants it. This is why there's over 40,000 books on Amazon that you can buy on that particular topic. Because everybody wants it. It's a universal longing. But it also gives us a framework to understand the universal human problem. One way to think about the universal human problem is that we're all looking for happiness in the wrong places. That's the problem. That's your problem. It's my problem. It's all of our problem. We're just, we're looking for for all the things that our soul really wants just in all the wrong places. And in this particular sermon, Jesus helps point the way to the right place. Like if you really want that deep, durable delight, that deep, durable happiness, here's the way, Jesus says. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones Maybe the the best preacher of the last century, this is the way he talked about it. 
He said, happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness, and it's tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. The vast majority are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery. In other words, we want happiness, but we're, we're seeking it in all the ways that are going to give us the opposite of happiness. He goes on to say, anything which by evading the difficulties merely makes people happy for the time being is ultimately going to add to their misery and problems. This is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. It is always offering happiness, and it always leads to unhappiness and a final misery. But, he goes on to say, the Sermon on the Mount says, however, that if you really want to be happy, here is the way. I, I just, I hope that maybe just periodically you'll read back through the Sermon on the Mount and just let it answer the question. What is the way that Jesus says will lead to happiness? What is that way? And you'll just read it as a reminder that this is the way. It's not that way. It's not that way. But no, it's this way. This is the way that leads to happiness. And it's a surprising way. It's an unexpected way. It starts by Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a surprising way to lead into happiness. Happiness are the, happy are the, are the poor in spirit. Happiness really does start down at the bottom, down in the valley. It says, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who cry over their sin. Happy or blessed are the meek. Happy or blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to the merciful, for the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the persecuted. Now, I just read that, and I'm like, Jesus, seriously, that's the way to happiness? And Jesus is looking at you and I and saying, yes, this is the way. This is the way to that deep, durable delight. Later in chapter 5, Jesus repeatedly says, you've heard that it was said, but that's not going to be the way. Uh, but, but I say, Jesus is showing the way to happiness and human flourishing. In chapter 6, Jesus makes it clear that motives matter. And they don't just matter, but motives matter most. That Jesus sees through all of our doing all the way down into our desires. He goes on to tell us in Matthew 6 that the way of happiness, here's the way, store up treasure in heaven. Don't hoard here. Store up treasure in heaven. Don't bow to the God of money. You can't serve two masters. He says, don't be anxious and fearful because you've got a good dad as your God, the creator of the universe, and he promises to meet your needs. In chapter 7, Jesus says, just defining the way of happiness, he says, be careful how you judge. Make sure you get the, the log out of your own eye, the log, before you take the, the small specks out of your neighbor's eye. He says to ask, come to me and ask. He's, he's inviting us to ask, to seek, to knock, to, to come and pour out our hearts to God in prayer. And then last week, Ryan did such a good job in covering the golden rule, Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Jesus is showing us the surprising way to happiness and to human flourishing. Now today, starting in verse 13, we step out of the body of the sermon into the conclusion of the sermon, Jesus is landing the plane starting in verse 13. He's, he's wrapping up this sermon. And Jesus doesn't wrap up the sermon with a good joke that's got a big laugh at the end of it. That's not what he does. That, that's not the, the end of his sermon. Rather, he ends with a somber command to act. Jesus looks at us in the eyes. He's pulled up the chair in front of us. He's looking at us with this somber and serious look, and he says, now is the time to act. 
Now I want you to, de- to decide. Now you need to do something with what you've just heard. Just think about this. Jesus didn't preach to impart information. That's not the reason he preached. He, he preached for the sake of transformation. He, he wanted us to hear something and then to do something with what we've heard, to act, to decide. I, I love how one pastor sums up the, this last kind of concluding part of this sermon. He said, it is now make up your mind time on the mountain. That that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying it's now time to make up your mind and to do something with what you've, you've heard. Jesus knows that nobody hears a sermon. N- nobody has the, the Bible opened up to them and they listen to the words of God preached to them. Nobody does that, hears a sermon, and then stays the same. He knows either our hearts are growing softer and more open to Jesus as we respond, or they are growing harder and more closed to Jesus as we refuse to respond. But nobody stays in neutral. Nobody stays the same. So he says, I want you to act. I want you to do something. I want you to open up your heart, and I want you to respond to what I've said. I want you to obey what I've said. And to bring us to this point of decision, to this decision point, Jesus uses four contrasting metaphors. Four contrasting metaphors, four metaphors that that put a fork in the road and say, you're either going to do this or that, but you can't stay here. To stay here is to do the wrong thing. So he gives these four contrasting metaphors. It's a this way or that way, a left or a right, a decision has to be made. So the first thing I just want you to hear this morning from Jesus is Jesus is looking at you and us and saying, be decisive. Today, be decisive. So church, can we just make that commitment right now? That today, whatever Jesus puts in front of us, whatever forks in the road he puts in front of us, that today we're going to be decisive. We're going to make decisions for Jesus. And whatever whatever would be appropriate in the way that you need to respond to him today. So he gives these four contrasting metaphors. I just want to run through these four metaphors with you. Here's the first one. He gives the metaphor of the two paths. The two paths. You see this starting in verse 13. He says, enter by the narrow gate. The the narrow gate, not the wide gate. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, just imagine, just put yourself into the story. Imagine this sermon as a journey, you and Jesus. Jesus has had you by the hand, and he has been walking with you for three chapters. And now in in chapter 7, verse 13, after three chapters of preaching, of talking to you, Jesus walks you up to the fork in the road. And he says, before you are two gates, and each of these gates open to a path. And those paths are going to take you to a destination. And here are the two destinations. Here are the two options. These two paths lead in two different places to two different destinations. Destination one, Jesus calls life. Now, now in talking about that word life, Jesus is looking beyond this life because this life is really to Jesus' pre-life. This is not real life. This is pre-life. But he's looking beyond this life to to real life, to, 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 to big, all caps, life, to this incredibly bright future that awaits all of Jesus's people. Or another way you could think of it is he's looking forward beyond this life to heaven to the new heavens and the new, and the new earth, to a day when all the brokenness of this world is going, is going to be made new. He's looking to this place where there will be no sickness, no suffering, no death, no decay, no darkness. 
where every tear will be wiped away and every joy fully present. He's looking to that life, to, to heaven. He's looking to Revelation 21, this picture of God coming down and dwelling with his people and we, the people of God, dwelling with our God. This is what Jesus calls life. It's, it's life. It's, the place where, it's a place where a person just like you and just like me can flourish forever. That's life. Jesus says that's one destination. It's life, a place where you and I can flourish forever. But there's another destination. It's called destruction. Again, Jesus is looking beyond this life, pre-life, and he's looking to the life to come. And he's saying there's this other destination, and this destination contains no human happiness. It contains no human flourishing. This destination has nothing but misery awaiting forever. Where life is shorthand for heaven, destruction is shorthand for hell, a place of utter ruin forever under the wrath of God for our sin. That's destruction. Jesus often uses this imagery as he's talking about it in the New Testament, talking about hell of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's terrible language to describe a terrible place, a place of misery, of ruin, and destruction. Now, before we go on, church, can we just feel this for a second? Jesus is talking to us right now with a pleading heart, and he is saying, not, not few, not, not just a couple, not, not a few dozen, but many, many people will endure God's wrath forever, the destruction. Man, I just, I can't say that without tears. That this is what's awaiting many, God says, Church, heaven and hell are not, are not sort of make-believe or cute truths. Heaven and hell are bone-jarring realities. It's one of two destinations forever. For, forever. Every human being that's ever existed will find themselves of one of two places Forever. Destination one is life where we'll all flourish forever. Destination two is destruction where we'll have ruin and misery forever. In the end, if we get this wrong, it doesn't matter what else we get right. That These are bone-jarring realities. Now, now, when I see that, that there's, there's these two destinations, everybody's going to end up in one of these two. It's either life or it's destruction. It makes me ask the question, well, well how can I make sure I get to life? Like, I want life. I don't want destruction. I want a place where I can flourish forever, not be in misery forever. And, and thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He says, you must enter by the narrow gate. If you want life, you have to enter by the narrow gate, not the wide gate. But, but the narrow gate, what does Jesus mean by the narrow gate? Jesus is, re, is referring to the exclusivity of the gospel. The, the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus is clarifying that there aren't ten ways to enter life. There's not five ways to enter life. There's not two ways to enter life. There is one way, only one way to be reconciled to God, to have our sin dealt with, to have our sin atoned for, to be welcomed into the family of God, adopted into the family of God as his sons and daughters. There is only one way, and Jesus tells us the way. He says you have to enter by the narrow gate. There's, there's one way. It's a narrow gate. People will, will sometimes ask, is Christianity exclusive? Is it exclusive? And the answer to that is, well, yes and no. Yes and no. Um, I like to say that we believe in a fully inclusive exclusivity. 
We believe in a fully inclusive exclusivity. We often sum up the gospel in these three phrases. We're all idiots. It's the humbling part. We have an incredibly bright future, but listen to this, in Jesus. There's your exclusivity. It's, it's only in Jesus. And here's the third part. And anyone can get in on this. There's your inclusivity. So, so it's, it's a fully inclusive exclusivity. Christianity is open to all, only excluding those who refuse it. So, so it's a fully inclusive exclusivity. This is the way Jesus talks about this in other places in the scriptures. Uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. That's, that's very exclusive. He is defining himself as the narrow gate. If you don't come through me, you don't come at all. It, it's exclusive. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone, there's your inclus inclusivity. If anyone, it's open to all, though. I am the door. It's exclusive. You've got to come this way, but it's open to all. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I love how one pastor said it. There is only one Savior, but anyone can have him as their Savior. Fully inclusive exclusivity. John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to me except no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying, I am the narrow gate. It is through me or it's not at all. It's not I am a way, I am a truth, or I am a life. I am the, it's a, it's a definite article, I am the way. There is no other way, he's saying. John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever, there's your in inclusivity, whoever, like anyone that wants it can come and have it. Who, who, whoever, he says, believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's the, the exclusivity of the gospel. It's whoever wants it can come and get it. There is one Savior, and anyone can have him as their Savior. Now, our culture hates the, the exclusivity of Jesus. It just bristles at the thought of it. When you talk about the ex exclusivity of Jesus, the, the exclusive claims that Jesus makes, you instantly become an intolerant bigot. That, that's how you're framed or thought about in our culture. Our culture wants a pluralistic wide gate. It doesn't matter what you believe or who you believe in. All roads lead to the same place. All beliefs lead to the same God. And Jesus here is saying to that, no, that is not true. That, that is not true. There are only two ways, the way of Jesus, the narrow gate, and, the, and all others. That's the wide gate. One leads to life, the narrow gate, Jesus. All other ways lead to destruction. This is why he commands us, so, so enter by the narrow gate. He doesn't invite us to enter by the, he commands it. He says, so, so in light of that, do this, decide, enter by the narrow gate. So, so let's just take a moment before we go on and just ask the question, have we entered by the narrow gate? That's a command. Have we obeyed this command of Jesus to enter by the narrow gate, to give up on our own good works, to turn from our sin, and to throw ourselves upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the door, the gate through which we can walk into life? H have you done that? Have you entered by the narrow gate? He says, if you want to have life, you have to enter by the narrow gate. But then he goes on to say, and you must also walk a hard road, a hard path. Behind that gate is a hard path. So you, so you must walk a hard path. But Jesus says there is also a wide gate that leads to an easy path. 
So, so you have to be careful of what, what gate you're entering and, and then what path you're walking. There's, this, there's also this wide gate that leads to an easy path. path. And it's easy, it's easy because we're born onto this path. Like when you come out of the womb, you are on the wide road. This wide road is in rebellion against God. It's indifferent to God. This path is easy because it's innate. You live like you want to on that path. No one tells you what to do. There's not a God to kind of manage or to tell you what's right and what's wrong in your life. It's easy because you do what you want to do. You do it when you want to do it. It's your whims and your wishes. That's what rules the day. But Jesus says this wide gate and this easy road ends in eternal ruin, in destruction. On the other hand, he says this narrow gate leads to a hard path. Now, that hard path, Jesus is talking about the Christian life, just our life with Jesus after we enter the narrow gate. When you say yes to Jesus, you're also saying yes to the difficult road of self-renunciation. This is the hard path. This is, the, this is the narrow path. It's, it's the difficult, long road of, of self-renunciation. Jesus describes it like this a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 16. Verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, Then Jesus told his disciples, so, so this is what it looks like to enter the gate, and here's the road behind it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So so denying self, taking up your cross and following Jesus isn't just about saying no to something. It's about renouncing you as the owner and ruler of your life. That's the hard road. It's it's, it's the road of renunciation, self-renunciation. I am no longer the boss of me. I am no longer the ruler of me. I'm no longer the, the owner of me. God is. The, the, Jesus is the one who gets to call the shots from this point forward. I love how one pastor said it. He said, this call to deny self means that for the rest of your life with Jesus, for, for the rest of your life, you have to take sides with Jesus and against yourself. This is why it's hard. We have to take sides with Jesus, and we have to take sides against ourselves. So, so just think about how life works with Jesus. Um, you're going to live today, and today you're going to have desires. And some of those desires are going to be competing with the desires that Jesus has for you. And denying self means that when our desires run contrary to Jesus' desires for us, that we side against what we want, and we side with Jesus. That's the painful road of self-renunciation, of denying self and picking up our cross. And isn't this like what the whole Sermon on the Mount has been confronting us with? In chapter 5, Jesus says, love your enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but that just comes so natural to me. I mean, I just don't even have to think about that before I do it, right? No, that doesn't come natural to anyone. The only way you will ever love your enemy is to stop siding with your desires and to start siding with Jesus. To give up on you and to side with Jesus, to take sides with him, that's the only way you'll ever do it. Uh, he goes on to, to talk about when someone wrongs us, uh, you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye. And I like that saying when someone wrongs me. I mean, that, that fits just about perfect for what I want in that moment. But he goes, no, th- that's not my way. Here's my way. I tell you to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. The only way that will ever happen in your life is when you stop siding with you and you start siding with Jesus. 
When you deny yourself, you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus. This is the painful, narrow, hard road of self-renunciation. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, What you want others to do to you, you go have them do to you, right? No, that's not what he says. That's not what he says. He says, What you want others to do to you, you turn around and do that to them. The only way you will ever do that is to stop siding with yourself and to start siding with Jesus, to, to renounce yourself. The only way you're ever going to crucify lust and kill anger like Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, the only way you're ever going to keep your promises like Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 is to constantly be siding with Jesus against yourself. That's the painful road that follows the narrow gate. Now, let me be clear. Yes, the road is painful, but it's also lined with heart-filling pleasures because Jesus is there. He's not calling anyone to ultimate self-denial. He's, he's calling us all into the road that will lead to life and life to the full. That, that's what he's after. That's what he wants. He's leading us down this, this road that has this deep, durable delight in God, both in this life now and in the life to come. And it's so deep and so durable that everything we endure on that hard road, when we, when we just taste the deep, durable delight that Jesus offers, it's going to make every painful moment seem as light and momentary. Just, it's going to make it seem as, as if it's insignificant. So if you entered the gate, are you walking down that painful road of self-renunciation? Like right now in your life, where are you having to renounce yourself? To, to take sides against you and with Jesus. This is normative Christianity. And if that's not happening, it's probably saying something about your Christianity. Where in your life are you siding against you and with Jesus? So Jesus first says there are two roads, there's two paths. Which path are you on? Is it, the narrow, is it the narrow gate leading to the hard road that leads to life? Or is it this wide gate leading to this easy road that ends in your eternal destruction? Which path? And then he says there are also two prophets. Two prophets. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, now think about the imagery. Jesus is painting this picture. You've been walking with Jesus for three, for three chapters. And he ends in this concluding section by walking you hand in hand up to that fork in the road. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate. The, the wide gate leads to your eternal destruction. The narrow gate to your eternal flourishing and, and, and happiness. And then he, he also wants us to be aware, though, that, that in front of these two gates, standing there beside each of the two gates... There are two sets of preachers or prophets or, or teachers. Beside the, the narrow gate are true prophets, uh, true teachers. They're looking at you as you're looking at the wide and the narrow gate, and they're saying, come this way to the narrow gate. Come here. This is the way to human flourishing. It's only through Jesus. So come and have Jesus. Don't go to the wide gate. I know it looks easy. It looks so great, but don't go there. It is the wide gate. It's all the other ways of trying to find life, and they all end in your eternal ruin. That there are true prophets, and there are also false prophets in front of the wide gate. And they are also preaching a message. Hey, hey, don't, don't worry about this gate or that gate. All roads lead to the same place. Every belief gets you to the same God. That, that's the voice of false prophets. 
Hey, if you want the narrow gate, hey, it's no worries. But just look down that road. You see how hard it is? I mean, there's only like four people going down that road. That should probably tell you something. Now, look over here at this wide gate. Do you, you see how easy and great that road is? I mean, look at how many people are walking down that. That's telling you everything you need to know about where you need to be. So, so, so if you want to go to the narrow gate, that, that's fine. But why wouldn't you come into this gate? Down this road, down this wide road, an easy path, no one tells you what to do, when to do it. This road is all about you. It's all about what you want, when you want it. So, so come here. This is going to be the road that leads you to life and flourishing. It reminds me of Jeremiah's day where God rebukes the false prophets of his day by saying, here's what you false prophets are saying. You are saying, peace, peace. You're looking to these people who are disobeying me who are um, running from me, you're looking at them and saying, um, hey, you're just fine. There's nothing to worry about. You and God, you are all good. There is, there is nothing to worry about. You can sleep easy tonight. You can sleep easy as you're disobeying, as you're worshiping your false gods. God doesn't care about any of that. Just, just kind of just live and you're gonna, it's going to be okay in the end. He says, here's what you're saying, false prophets. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is what false prophets do. They're standing in front of the wide gate saying, here is the way of peace when there is no peace down that road. And Jesus is alerting us to false prophets are just as prevalent now as they were then. So he says, beware. Now, why would we need to beware? He tells us, because they come to you in sheep's clothing. False prophets don't hand you a business card and print it over the top of that business card in big, bold letters. It says false prophet. That's not what they do. They, they don't leave a number and say, hey, come and tell me when you want a big fat lie. Just, hey, just holler at me. That's not how it comes. On their business card, it says pastor. It says priest. It says bishop. They present themselves as people pointing you to life. But Jesus says, although they're in sheep's clothing, inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They're, they're hard to see, but he's saying they are eternally dangerous. So dangerous that if you listen to them, you will end up in hell forever in destruction forever, in misery, in ruin forever. So, so Jesus says, beware. He says, to test them in verse 16. You'll recognize them by their fruits. The, the testing of fruit takes time. But eventually what they are is seen in their conduct and what they believe is seen in their teaching. I, I wish we had more time to apply this little section, but I just want to encourage you to beware of, of who you listen to, who you allow influence in your life, what books that you read, what podcasts that, that you consider. Pay attention to these things. Because there are false prophets luring people down the wide road to their eternal destruction. And, and here's your best test. Read the Bible and ask, does this match that? Does what they're saying match what the scriptures say? And if they do, great, bank on that. But if it doesn't, run as fast as you can. Jesus says there are two kinds of prophets. So, so beware of false prophets. And then Jesus goes on to say there are two professions. Two professions. This is the scariest part of, of this passage to me, of the Bible probably in general to me. This is one of the scariest passages. And this passage shows us, starting in verse 21, the two professions. The two things people say. First of all, the first profession is what we say. Start in verse 21 of Matthew 7. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me. So, so 
on, on one level, we as people are talking up to God. What, what we say, here's one profession. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, not a few, not just a couple, but many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Now, now let's just think about this for a moment. Let me just make a few observations. Um, it's amazing that their confession is right. I mean, they are looking at Jesus and they're referring to Jesus as Lord. They've got the facts down. They knew their theology. They've read their books. They've got the facts down and they actually agreed with the facts. They were saying, yes, Jesus, this is who Jesus is and we agree with who Jesus is. Their confession was right. Their confession was also polite. Is there a more respectful way to refer to Jesus than as, than as you know, referring to him as Lord. It's, it's a polite confession. Their confession was passionate. See, when we want to emphasize something, I just start screaming, right? I, 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 volume is how we typically emphasize things. How they emphasize thing, things was by repetition. So they didn't just say Lord, they said Lord, Lord. It, it's, it's repetition. That's their way of, of emphasizing or increasing the volume. It was a passionate plea. And then look at their works. They, they said, Jesus, we've prophesied in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done all of these mighty works in your name. I mean, that's a good list, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a godly list. That's a helpful list of things. That, that's their profession. But, but God also has something to say in this passage. What we say something, and then there's something that God says. What does God say? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, here's his profession. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I, I want to point your attention to that key phrase, I never knew you. I, I never knew you. There's nothing more important in your life than God knowing you and you knowing God. There's nothing more important in your life than God knowing you and you knowing God. Not knowing about God, but God knowing you, you knowing God. Now, God is all-knowing, so in, in one sense, he knows about everything, right? He, he knows all things, but that's not the sort of knowing that this passage is talking about. Uh, this sort of knowing is the way a husband knows his wife. It's covenantal language. It's the language that God uses to describe the way that, that he knows his covenant people that he knows those who have given up on themselves and thrown themselves on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the way he talks about those who have had their sins forgiven, who have been reconciled to him, who have gone from death to life, from enemy to friend, who are no longer under his wrath, but now have his forever welcome. It's God's language. I, I, I never knew you. It's that, that knowing that God's talking about. It's the knowing that really matters in the end. And the people known by God are those who enter by the narrow gate and walk the hard road. But those who enter by the wide gate and walk the easy road, no matter, listen to this, no matter how religious they look, and these people looked really religious. They looked really good. But, but the people who enter by the wide gate and walk the easy road, no matter how religious they look, they are not known by God but rejected by God forever. 
Is there any more sobering passage in the Bible than this? And church, look at verse 22. It says, on that day, many, not a few, not not just a couple, not just a few of those religious-looking people that are doing a lot of religious-looking things like reading their Bibles, like going to church, like serving, like, like trying to be a good husband or trying to be a good wife or trying to flourish as a single person. It's like, no, it's not a few of them, but, but many will say to me, Lord, Lord, who Jesus looks back at and says, I never knew you. Listen to these words by J.C. Ryle. He says, the day of judgment will reveal strange things. One day we're all going to be before God, and that moment before God is going to reveal strange things. The hopes of many who were thought great Christians while they lived will be utterly confounded. When we read a passage like this, I don't think anyone in the room should read it assuming that you know God and that God knows you. I think we should do what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and we should examine ourselves to see whether you're in the faith. It says to test ourselves. Don't assume it, but test it. I mean, the many in Matthew 7 wore religious-looking clothes. They were doing religious things, good things, great things. And they were even appealing to those good things as reasons for why they should get in. But they were wide-road people. They, They never felt their need. They never felt their moral bankruptcy. They had never come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of people. These people knew all sorts of things about God. They just never got around to actually knowing God. And we shouldn't assume that that's not us, but we should test it. We should ask, have you given up on yourself and thrown your life upon the good work of Jesus for you? Have you entered by the narrow gate? Are you walking down the hard road? He says there's two professions, and he ends by saying there are two foundations. There are two foundations. This is Jesus with with great urgency. He has brought us to this decision point. He's saying, which of the two paths will you take? There's only two. There's not 10. There's not 20. There's not not five. there's, There's only two. There is a a wide gate, and there's a narrow gate. This one leads to destruction. This one leads to life. Which path will you take? Which of the two prophets will you listen to? The one heralding the wide gate, everything but Jesus, or the one heralding the narrow gate? The one saying, Jesus is the door. He's the only way. Which profession is yours? And then lastly, which of the two foundations have you built your life upon? Starting in verse 23, Jesus is, this is the last thing he's about to say. Three chapters. He's he's given us his heart. He's opened up his big heart to us and he's laid it out before us. And now he's saying it's time to make a decision. It's time to respond And I just want to end 
our whole set of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount by reading and just with the words of Jesus. I'm not even going to comment on it. I'm just going to, I just want to finish by reading in the words of Jesus how he finishes this sermon. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, hears them and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain of God's judgment fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, you hear these words and does not do them. You hear them, but you do not do them. Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain of God's judgment fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and that house fell, and great was the fall of it. Will you bow your head and pray there with me? I want to give you a moment to respond to the Lord. in a lot of ways I feel like this week I've just been an emotional basket case thinking about these words from Jesus and you the people of this church that I just so dearly love a passage like this just it, it it's so scary to me because I know that we can all sit here in sermons just like this and do this week after week and month after month and the house of our life can look so good. It can be so hard to distinguish between the house that's built on the rock of hearing and doing from the house that is built on the sand of hearing and not doing. It's so hard to distinguish that. It, it, in a lot of ways, it's impossible to tell the difference between those two houses because they look exactly the same on the surface. It, it's impossible to tell the difference between those two houses. W one that actually knows God, one, one that actually is, is entered through the narrow gate and walking that, that hard road. It's hard to tell that house from the wide road person until the moment that it matters most. Until the moment where everything becomes obvious. As the, the house of our, the, the life of our house is hit by the, by the judgment of God. And then everything is made known in that moment. And for the house that, that is built on the rock, that is walked through the narrow gate, down that hard road, in the storm of God's judgment, they stand. They are welcomed into life forever. But the person who has chosen the wide road, even though his house looks great, but they've chosen the wide road and have walked the easy path. 
when the storm of God's judgment hits, there is a great fall, a fall into everlasting destruction. And so here we are with a moment to test ourselves, a moment to examine ourselves. Have we entered by the narrow gate? Has there been a moment in your life where you have given up on yourself, where you've turned from all the sin that you know disqualifies you from God, and you've turned from all the good things in your life that you think somehow qualify you before God? You've turned from all of that, and you've hurled yourself on the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, in your place, who lived in your place, living the life that you could never live, died in your place, place on the cross, fully absorbing all of God's wrath over your sin, risen from the dead on the third day, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. Has there been a moment where that's happened? You, you entered through the narrow gate. And if not, Jesus is saying this morning, enter in the narrow gate. It's a command. Be decisive. Like right now, this is your moment. If you've never done that, this is your moment to communicate that to God. Just right there where you are, I want Jesus. I want to enter through the narrow gate. I, I want to walk the road that leads to life. Yes, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin. And I'm saying yes to you, Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I just want you to raise your hand where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. If that's you this morning, and God is talking to you like this this morning. Yeah, I see you. I see you. You know, and it's so scary. Yep, I see you. I see you. Yeah. Anybody else this morning? If I see you. Yep. And if you raise your hand, yep, I see you this morning. And if you raised your hand today, at the end of our service, our elders and our prayer team are going to be down up front. Don't leave here today without coming and praying with us. We would love to pray for you. We just would love to begin that journey with you today. And if you didn't raise your hand this morning, come down here and meet us this morning. We would love to be able to pray for you and just begin that journey with you. And for the rest of us in the room, are we walking down that narrow, hard road? Where in our life are we siding against ourselves and for Jesus? God, would you show us these things today? Would you help us? God, I pray that if, if, if we are part of the many who think we know you, but we don't, God, that you would put such, a, such an uncomfortable spirit in us right now, God. God, that you would disturb us, that you wouldn't let us walk out of here deceived today. So, oh God, help us. Give us eyes that can see. We know that's a gift of your spirit. So give us eyes that can see, a heart that can understand today. We pray it in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. 
so we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.